Today's scripture reading is Matthew 4:12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Today we're going to talk about vegans that eat Big Macs. If I was to stand before you today and argue for meat-eating vegans, or lifeguards that don't do water, or firemen who don't do fires, or violent pacifists, you'd stop me and go, whoa, Adam, something smells fishy here. You know, by definition, being a vegan means that you don't eat animal products. By definition, being a lifeguard means you must do water. Being a fireman means you must do fires. And by definition, pacifists don't do violence. Activity flows from identity. Our activity flows from our identity. If you're a lifeguard, we expect you to do water. If you're a vegan, we expect you to avoid Big Macs. Because activity flows from identity. And so if you claim to be a lifeguard, but you don't do water, well, something smells fishy. And church, does something smell fishy about us followers of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to that question, let's begin at the beginning of the passage that Donna just read for us this morning. 
John the Baptist, who we've heard about in previous weeks, has been arrested. Matthew tells us that Jesus now leaves Nazareth and he moves to Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum becomes his new home base. It becomes the, the home base for all of his ministry there in Galilee. And Matthew identifies that Jesus' move was not just practical and strategic, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. And he quotes for us both Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. And now, Capernaum was located in the area where the northern tribes, uh, there was the land of the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And when Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 B.C., Zebulun and Naphtali would have been the first two tribes to come under attack. They would have suffered the darkness of their punishment and exile for their sin first. And so both Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 42 are messianic prophecies. They look forward to the time of the promised Messiah, the anointed one, who is going to come and bring light and life to all of those who are captive and exiled. And so what we find here is that Matthew quotes these passages and he talks about the history of Israel some. And he says that the captivity of Assyria and later Babylon and then their return offers a foreshadowing of the spiritual liberation that the Messiah is going to bring to people. Jesus is a more perfect fulfillment of bringing light to the captives. Jesus is a more perfect fulfillment of bringing the exiles back home. Jesus perfectly fulfills this. By quoting the prophecies of Isaiah, Matthew's again emphasizing what we've seen him emphasize so far. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one that all of the Old Testament points to. He is the anointed one of God who has been sent to bring light to those who are in darkness to bring home those who are exiled, and to rescue those who live in the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, that's good news. It's good news not just for them then. That's good news for us today. Because all of us, we still live in the darkness of our sin. We're still suffering like they were the consequence of rebellion. We are exiled from God's presence, captive to sin and to selfishness, All of us live under the sentence of the shadow of death. But the gospel, the good news is that Jesus has come to bring light into our darkness. He's come to bring forgiveness to our sins. He's come to end our rebellion and our exile. He has come to give life to those who are under the sentence of death. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is what Jesus immediately begins to preach. We see in verse 17, he declares... From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, it's the same message that we heard John proclaiming the previous chapter. Repent, do a 180 degree turn, change your mind, literally. Stop fighting against, resisting, and rebelling against the Lord. The message of repent, friends, is good news. It might sound like bad news, but it's good news. Because the message of repent means that the king who's coming and the kingdom that he brings, he's come offering terms of peace. He's come offering terms of peace because of his great mercy and his compassion. No matter how great is your treason, no matter how heinous your crime, no matter how horrible your rebellion, it can be forgiven and you can have peace with the king if you will but repent and turn and willingly enter his kingdom. 
This is good news. And friends, it's good news for us, just as it was good news for them. Because our situation today is the same as it was then. So Christ's invitation today is the same as it was then. A light has dawned upon those of us who are living in the shadow of death. And repent. Find forgiveness of your sins. Turn to the coming King. And be forgiven and healed. Friends, what stops you? What stops you from turning and receiving the peace that the King has come to give? In verse 18, we find Jesus. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He encounters two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they're both fishermen by trade. Now, this was not the time, the first time, that Jesus meets these men. It's the first time that we see them in this gospel, in Matthew's account. But when we go back to John's gospel, in John chapter 1, we actually find out that Jesus first met these men about a year prior to this encounter that's recorded here. So for about a year, Jesus has been in relationship with these men. For about a year, Jesus has known these men and had some sort of relationship. However, up until then... Jesus has not called them to follow him full time. And so we see them there by the water, still engaged in their job, fishing. However, Jesus has come today in the account that Donna read for us to offer these men a new identity. Now, now notice what I just said there. I didn't say Jesus came to offer them a new job. I didn't say that Jesus called them into an activity. Friends, Jesus invited these men into a new identity. Jesus' call is not mere behavioral modification. Jesus' call is to life transformation. Jesus doesn't show up merely with a list of things for them to do. He shows up and he says, this is who I'm going to make you to be. This is who I'm going to make you to be. He's inviting these men into a new identity. Listen again to Jesus' words in verse 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, up until this point, these men have identified themselves primarily as fishermen. And what do fishermen do? They catch fish. Jesus says, I'm here to call you into a new identity. You are now going to be my followers. My disciples. And what do disciples do? Lifeguards save those in the water. Firemen fight fires. Fishermen catch fish. And my followers fish for men. Friends, I acknowledge that I'm using an older mode of the English language today. I just want to say here, I'm going to use it throughout the sermon. Fishers of men, fishermen, I know I'm using these in a gender-inclusive way because it is awkward to try to make it sound more gender-inclusive. So just hear me as I'm speaking it today. I mean this all in a gender-inclusive manner because, friends, Jesus has come to call both men and women, and he calls us to reach both men and women. So we are called to be fishers of men. Here, Jesus is inviting these men not just to an activity, He's inviting them into a new identity. You're no longer fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus is calling these men to be his disciples. Friends, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. 
A disciple is an apprentice. A disciple is someone who follows in order to be made into something. Friends, whenever we follow, we either make or are made. We follow things in order to make or to be made. You follow a recipe to make a dessert. You follow directions to build a bookshelf. You follow those really detailed instructions to build a Lego model. And then you find out you're missing a piece. We follow in order to make. But friends, we also follow in order to be made. You follow a training program to be made a better runner. You follow a teacher to become an expert in your field. You follow a master to become a pianist or an electrician or a karate sensei. The point of following someone is to be made like them. So we follow in order to make or in order to be made. And Jesus invites these men to follow him that they might be made. And what are they going to be made into? They're going to be made like him. Like the master. Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 6 verse 40. He taught a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We follow in order to become. We follow in order to be made. Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple, become like me, and those who are like me will be like me, fishers of men. So church, we don't follow a set of principles. We follow a person. We don't follow a morality. We follow a man. We follow to be made like him. We follow to be as he is. We, it means we want to do as he does. I will make you fishers of men. And church, this is where it gets uncomfortable for all of us. Because here's where we've got to get honest and go, is there something fishy here? Church, what's fishy is that we're not more fishy. What's fishy is that we, Jesus' disciples, are not doing much fishing. Right here, Jesus says those who follow him are being made like him. By definition, friends, lifeguards save those in the water. Firemen fight fires. And those who are following Jesus should be fishing for men. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you worshipers of me. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you scholars of my word. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you attenders of my church services. Now, friends, all those things are important, but those are all means to the ends. All those things are means. The the point, the goal that all of those things serve to is to make us fishers of men. Church, a fisherman is not defined as someone who subscribes to Field and Stream or American Angler magazine. A fisherman is not she who has the most lures, the best rods and reels, the newest bass boat, the best fish finders. A fisherman is not the one whose fishing club has the most members or who spends the most time at bass pro shops. She's not the one who dresses the part in vest and hat and waders. And it's not the one who talks the most about fishing. Church, all those things are good. And all, but all those things that I just listed, those are means to the ends 
of fishing. If you do all those things, but you never fish, haven't you missed the point? And church, have we missed the point? Have we missed the point if we do all the other things, but we don't fish for men? Jesus says, those who follow me as my disciples become like me. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you're not regularly fishing for men, then friends, something smells fishy. This fishy is the vegan who eats Big Macs. Or the lifeguard who doesn't do water. And friends, maybe something actually should smell more fishy because maybe we should all be doing more fishing. Maybe we should smell more like fish. Church family, when was the last time? When was the last time you went fishing? Not dressed the part, not read about it, not sang about it, not gathered with the fishing club. When was the last time you went fishing for men? When was the last time you engaged someone with the good news of Jesus Christ in the hope that he or she would come to follow him? If she doesn't do water, can she call herself a lifeguard? If he doesn't do fires, can he call himself a fireman? And if we don't do fish, can we call ourselves followers? Church, we attend the gatherings, we read the books, we talk about it, we even dress the part, but why? Don't we fish more? You know, this week I was reading a 2018 study from Barna Research. It was titled Spiritual Conversations in a Digital Age. And they were exploring Christians' reluctance to engage in spiritual conversations. And they unearthed two, not surprising, two not surprising categories of objections why people were reluctant to fish. Why people are reluctant to engage in spiritual conversations. And the two broad categories were avoidance and ambivalence. Avoidance and ambivalence. The first category, avoidance, might also be replaced with another A word, ashamed. Ashamed. You know, it was 30 years ago when I was but a young man. Christian music group, the Newsboys, released their first successful album, and the title track was, I'm Not Ashamed. And the song was an anthem, I remember, when I was involved in youth ministry. And kids would be jumping up and down on Sunday night at youth groups singing, What are we sneaking around for? Who are we trying to please? We're shrugging off sin, apologizing like we're spreading some kind of disease. I'm saying, no way. I'm not ashamed to let you know. I want this light in me to show. I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. And I remember that song so boldly sung and proclaimed on Sunday night at youth group and maybe whispered on Monday when you went to school if you sang it all. Friends, shame and fear can make us reluctant to fish. And in our day, cancel culture shames people into silence. We're told we should be ashamed of some ideas. We can't even discuss them. We can't even consider the arguments. We can't even debate the merit of some ideas because some ideas and the people who hold them should just be shamed and they should feel ashamed. They shouldn't even be considered. They should just be canceled. And so we label speech as hate speech to shame and silence it. We label people and ideas using words that end in phobic to shame and silence them. Culture accuses, aren't you the type of person 
Are you the type of person to hold or even consider that idea? You should be ashamed of yourself. Friends, ideas and people, how, how dare you hold those ideas or, or be with those people? That's shameful. And friends, because of the fear, because of the shame, we avoid fishing. We avoid speaking. We avoid going. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at such treatment from the world. We are followers of Jesus. And friends, followers of Jesus should expect to be treated as Jesus was. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, A servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So friends, if we are truly followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, he who is shamed by this world, then we shouldn't be surprised to be shamed by this world as well. But church, should we fear this world? Should it cause us to avoid fishing? Should we avoid then speaking the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus knew we were going to struggle. He knew that it was going to be a constant battle for us to not be ashamed and to speak and to not avoid fishing. Jesus even speaks these words in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Friends, be not ashamed. Be not fearful. Jesus said it was going to happen. Avoidance is one, or being ashamed is one broad category of why we don't fish, but the second one is almost more disturbing. And that's ambivalence. Or maybe we might use another word, Apathy. We just don't care enough. We just don't care. You know, yesterday I was reading an excerpt from a brand new book that's just come out. It's titled, Overcoming Apathy, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care. And the author wrote about apathy saying, Apathy is not careless. It is care adrift or care misplaced. Our culture is a breeding ground for chronic apathy due to all the distractions available to us. We are regularly invited to care, but just not about important things. We are regularly invited to care, but just not about important things. Church, church, we are being distracted away from what is most important. So we've become apathetic and ambivalent about that which is most important. In C.S. Lewis' classic book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines a senior demon named Screwtape giving instructions to a junior demon named Wormwood on how he could distract and stop this man from loving God. And, and Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says that the goal, the goal is not wickedness as much as indifference. He writes, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. Provide me with people who do not care. Church, this culture will tell you it's okay to care about and be passionate about anything except Jesus. 
You can be passionate about sports or politics or hobbies or social issues. You can go to a rock concert or a political rally or a baseball game or a protest and get excited. Go horse from yelling so long and hard. When your team wins, jump up and dance around. Wave your hands in the air. When you perceive injustice, get angry and speak. When your candidate loses, weep openly and passionately. No one's going to think you're weird. But if you get passionate about Jesus, if you want to talk about Him, do you want to tell of His goodness? Do you want to speak of His cross? Do you want to celebrate His resurrection? Do you want to offer someone else the good news of His salvation? Whoa, don't be a religious fanatic. Don't, don't make it awkward. Don't make other people uncomfortable. Don't become one, you know, one of those extremists. Don't be a Jesus freak. Church, we're encouraged to be passionate about anything and everything except Christ. And as such, we have become ambivalent and apathetic about that which is most important. Fishing for men. Church, if he's apathetic about fires, do we call him a fireman? If she's ambivalent about water, do we call her a lifeguard? And if we're apathetic about fishing for men, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Church, what's the answer? So what is the answer to our avoidance and our ambivalence? What is the antidote to our ashamedness and our apathy? Church, there is an answer, and I believe the answer is we need more Jesus. We need more Jesus. Hear again Jesus' words to his first followers. He said, follow me and I will make you. I will make you fishers of men. Friends, Jesus does the making. It is the Spirit of Jesus in us that lights the fire that makes us brave and passionate. I think of what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, we need that spirit. We need more Jesus to overcome our ambivalence and our avoidance. We need a move of Jesus throughout His church, giving us a heart for the lost. We need His compassion for the deceived. We need His tears to flow for the broken. We need His boldness for the truth. Church, what we need more than strategies or tools or systems is we need more prayer. This week I was reading an article titled, How Prayer Fuels Disciple Making. And the author wrote, in the North American church, we would rather lean into strategies or systems or clever tools or dynamic preaching. And while all of these are important, they are not the fuel for the mission. Prayer is. Friends, the fuel for the mission, the fuel for fishing is prayer. Church, the more we become like Jesus, the more we do like Jesus. The more our identity is in Him, the more our activity becomes like Him. The more His Spirit is at work within us, the more His Spirit sends us out. Church, we need more Jesus. And we'll find that. We'll find Him in prayer. I mean, remember, when Jesus Himself encountered lost and oppressed people, what did He tell His disciples to do? Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Friends, I've noted before, this is one of only two places in the Gospels where Jesus gives us words to pray. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us the words of the Lord's Prayer, as we commonly call it, and he says, pray this way. And here again is the second and only other Lord's Prayer. Lord of the harvest, send out workers into your harvest. Seeing the need, he called his disciples to pray. Missionary Wesley Duell said, we can reach our world if we will. The greatest lack today is not people or funds. The greatest need is prayer. Friends, hear that again. We can reach this world if we will. The greatest lack is not people or funds. The greatest need is prayer. Because church, it's time for us to get honest with ourselves. It is not that we cannot reach this world. It is that we will not. Let's stop Speaking falsely now, the hour is getting late. We are not fishing, not because we're unable. We're not fishing because we're unwilling. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. It's not that we can't fish for men. It's that we will not. And friends, we make all kinds of excuses. I don't know enough. I can't answer every objection. I haven't been trained. I don't understand. But friends, let me tell you something. When I see a movie that moves me, and I want to tell other people about it, I don't, you know, not invite them to the movie because I'm like, ooh, I don't know who directed it. I I don't say, oh, I'd invite them to the movie, but I can't remember this plot point exactly. I'd invite them to the movie, but I, I don't remember this line of dialogue. I I can't invite them to the movie because I don't know all of the showtimes that the movie's showing. Otherwise, I'd invite them. Friends, no. When your heart is moved, you simply praise what you saw and invite others to see it. It's like going to a good restaurant. You have a great meal and you want to invite other people. Come, come try this. This was an incredible meal. And you don't go, oh, I'd invite them, but I don't know the name of the chef who cooked it. I'd invite them, but I don't know all of the ingredients that went into the dish, so I can't invite them. I, 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 don't, I can't invite them because I don't exactly know their business hours. Friends, know you praise what it is that you've received and experienced to others and invite them to come and to celebrate as well. And church, we don't fish for men, not because we're unable. It's that our hearts aren't so moved. And so we make excuses. We make excuses instead of fishing for men. Because you don't need to know everything there is to know to fish. You don't have to have all the best Bible lures and all of the, be able to quote every page of Field and Stream or the Apostle Paul. Friends, fishing for men happens when our hearts are moved to overflowing. And we proclaim what we've experienced and what we've seen and what we've heard. And we invite others, hey, come and see and taste that he is good. Friends, we're not fishing, not because we can't, 
We're not fishing because we won't. Our hearts are not like Jesus' heart, which is why we need prayer. Church, we need prayer because our hearts need to be made like Jesus' heart. Friends, prayer can ignite us and can ignite the larger church for a passion for Jesus Christ. Lord of the harvest, send out your laborers into the harvest. Church, we should actually be the most passionate people on earth because we have the one and only thing that's actually worth being passionate about. I love the words of the fanatical and passionate preacher, Charles Spurgeon, from the 19th century. He wrote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap, over, leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. His heart was on fire. Are ours? Church, we need to stop being fishy and start becoming fishers. Overcoming our avoidance or ambivalence. If the lost of Knox County are ever going to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, church is going to begin and happen in prayer. Prayer that we might live into our new identity as followers of Jesus Christ. Prayer that our hearts might come to beat with the heart of Christ. Prayer that our passions might become His passion. Prayer that our power might be His power. Prayer that our boldness might be His boldness. Prayer that His mission might become our mission and we might become fishers of men. Church, pray. Pray that our hearts might be moved, that we might be made ready, and that we might go. Lord of the harvest, Send out your laborers into the harvest. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Or better yet, make that our prayer. Make that our prayer. Lord of the harvest, send out workers into the harvest. And Father, begin with us. Begin with my heart. Give us the heart of Christ for the lost, that we might go, that we might fish, and that men, women, and children everywhere might hear of Jesus Christ, in whom is our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen.